it is very important to think very carefully about how we teach history in schools, also in museums. Depending on where we start telling the history, we can end up with seemingly different narratives. Have you, like me, wondered why nativism has risen so rapidly in the past decade and is now dominating the political landscape pretty much everywhere? You just heard Borja Martinovic. She is a sociologist and is going to tell us in a moment about prejudice towards alt groups and how, in the mind of people, a line is drawn between natives and outsiders. I'm Sanli Fayez, and this is the voice of Utrecht Academy. as associate professor at the Department of uh, Interdisciplinary Social Science at Utrecht University. The research that I do is um, kind of at the boundary between uh, sociology and social psychology. So I integrate these two perspectives mostly and I examine uh, attitudes that uh, the native populations have towards immigrants, their willingness to grant uh, grant them rights. Research is uh, really about this sense that the dominant uh, groups have that a country or a territory belongs to them. And uh, because they are the owners of the territory, they have the right to decide whom to include or exclude, uh, which means that actually they can uh, use this um, uh, claim of ownership to uh, prevent further immigration or to uh, deny additional rights to uh, immigrants who arrived later. Who are they and how do they actually enforce this? Is it a so homogeneous group? It's, um, it's a good question because um, the idea of uh, us owning something obviously uh, requires a certain group and identification with that group. What I'm looking at are uh, ethnic groups, uh, dominant groups. So in the Netherlands it would be the Dutch, uh, in uh, the UK it would be uh, the, the uh, English uh, or yeah, b- Anglo-Saxon uh, British people. Um, I also examine this in contexts uh, such as Australia or New Zealand or the US, the settler societies, and there, interestingly enough, the dominant group is the group who uh, cannot claim that they were there first, and this argument of first occupancy is very powerful, so in the Netherlands or in the UK and France, the dominant group can say this is our country because we are the first group that uh, inhabited it. Uh, in settler societies, uh, other arguments have to be used because the, the first occupiers, the first uh, settlers, are actually the Aborigines or Native Americans. So I'm interested in examining whether the European uh, colonizers actually use different claims. For instance, we were the first ones who started cultivating this land, or we are the ones who invested in it. We built these cities, we built the country as it is, so that's why we own it and that's why we can decide how to treat newcomers, but also whether or not to uh, give compensatory rights to the...
results that's maybe not very surprising because I hypothesized about it, but it is quite interesting, is that if you um, remind people in settler societies, if you remind these dominant white European uh, groups that, um, that their ancestors were the first groups who migrated to that country, and then in the second wave of migration, other Europeans arrived, and then Asians arrived, for instance, in the case of Australia, then they tend to um, see themselves as, as the first comer. And based on this, they uh, are less willing to accept, uh, for instance, boat people, which are the illegal migrants coming to Australia. And they're also less willing to compensate the rights of, uh, of Aborigines that they actually took away from them. However, if you give the people exactly the same story about different sequence of migration, and you say, yeah, you were the first migrants um, here, but you just remind them that actually 40,000 years before them, the Aborigines were already there, then you see that immediately they start to show more positive attitudes towards later migrants, and they also show more willingness to repair the damage done to the Aborigines, because then they realize that actually they and th their ancestors were not the group that was there first. So if they were allowed to come in, why shouldn't uh, more recent immigrants also be allowed? So you say these are the reflexive nerves that you should trigger. I'm saying that uh, it is very important to um, think very carefully about how we teach history in schools, um, also in musea, mu museums, etc., because um, Depending on where we start telling the history, we can end up with seemingly different narratives, and these narratives can trigger different responses to uh, ethnic outgroups. And it has, in the past, often been the case that uh, the, the narratives of Aborigines, of Native Americans, of the Maori, have been more silenced. Um, and nowadays, and in the past few decades, uh, this has been more incorporated in the uh, course materials, in, uh, in history textbooks, for instance. And what my research shows is that really, depending on where you start telling the story and what you emphasize, you, will, uh, you, can, you can change the general attitude of the public towards more or less inclusion. Is it uh, more the influence of upbringing, or uh, also the media at this current stage can also influence your attitude even as an adult to go from one narrative to the other I, th I think that actually the media that act that use these kind of uh, narratives uh, are very powerful because by presenting one type of story and one, one picture of, of the reality and and one view on the past they can uh, uh, they can uh, get more electoral support uh, for instance uh, all these right-wing parties that are now getting more and more power also use this rhetoric of, of our country and and uh, and us being uh, the the boss in our country and us being the ones who should control the borders uh, we saw that also with uh, brexit where the campaign was built around the idea of, of taking back control of our country I am originally Croatian, but actually I am 
also Dutch uh, now. Um, a year ago, I got the Dutch nationality, so I'm one of those problematic cases of uh, dual nationality, both Croatian and Dutch. What, what's problematic about it? Um, well, people in general uh, do not seem to like the idea of dual nationality. It is something that was more accepted in the past, but nowadays in the Netherlands there is more of a turn towards making dual nationality less possible um, because um, uh, others see you as someone with divided loyalties. was a high school student in Croatia and uh, the school that I attended was a school that had uh, connections with the college here in Utrecht, University College Utrecht, and the college was very new. They had just started it. Maybe it was the second or third year of its existence. And what they wanted to do is to make it more international. So they wanted to attract students from other countries and um, particularly from uh, Eastern Europe, which was underrepresented. Uh, after I finished the college, um, those three years of uh, bachelor degree were not recognized in Croatia. So this was still before the Bologna uh, was introduced in Croatia. And for three years of education, you could not have finished a university there. So basically, uh, with this diploma, I would have still only had a valid high school diploma, pretty much. And uh, it was really crucial that I actually stay abroad and finish a master's. And then I applied for a master's program here in migration and ethnic relations, which was a topic that I was very much enthusiastic about and uh, intrinsically motivated. Um, in and, uh, and I got a scholarship again for two years. So I thought, okay, I'll just finish this master's and after that I'll go back. But then I got a PhD offer and then after the PhD I stayed for a postdoc and then assistant professor and yeah, now it's been 17 years and finally, about two years ago, I bought permanent new furniture. Because all those years before <laughs> I was just thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to stay, so let's see how it goes. felt like a relief because I was constantly living in this space of wa wanting to go back but still feeling that I should stay and not knowing what would happen, which has its charms as well. Uh, but I think that now that I'm really settled here, I can keep, I, I can use my uh, cognitive energy on other things rather than uh, all the time thinking about what's going to happen and where I will end up wanted to get the Dutch nationality ultimately because I want to be able to vote in the Dutch elections because I pay taxes here, I live here, I'm married to a Dutch uh, guy. So um, that kind of political participation, if that is a, a sign of loyalty, then uh, I would say that I've, I am at the moment and I will be more um, loyal to the Netherlands in terms of politics. But then, you know, if there's a sports match between Croatia and the Netherlands and then Croatia scores, then I'm obviously much happier <laughs> and, um, and actually funnily enough, I'm in the Netherlands.
I've never really felt discriminated. So that's, that's one thing. So I have to say that I've always felt very much accepted in the Netherlands, which is probably also the reason why I stayed for 17 years. Um, I think I might maybe see myself more as an allochtone than that the Dutch see me, uh, because I feel that I'm still less competent in certain areas than the natives. And that's actually sometimes quite frustrating because in my home country, I used to be very comf competent <laughs> at many things, um, so take the Dutch language. I speak it fluently. I actually speak it maybe more often than uh, English with my husband at home, with many friends, actually also with many colleagues. But I know that if I want to make a point, I should better do it in English than in Dutch. And it's maybe my own insecurity that makes me kind of underperform when I speak Dutch. So if I'm really excited about something or really angry, then my Dutch proficiency improves. <laughs> um, but yeah, about being an allochtone, so I think it comes more from myself and I have this one anecdote uh, that I could share here. I uh, used to play handball here recreationally with uh, grown up women who just did it for fun. So we were not really good, but it was a lot of fun. And they were all Dutch, and they came from uh, Utrecht and from some villages around Utrecht. So actually, that was my first encounter with non-academic, non-student population in the Netherlands. And I fel felt very much part of their group. But then once I said, well, you are uh, all Dutch, and, and uh, I'm, and maybe th there was a discussion about immigrants or something like that. And I said, well, I'm also an allochtone. And then they said, oh, no, but you're not an allochtone. Why? Because I was highly educated, because I spoke the language, because I am white, because I'm not religious. I, I assume that these are these are the, the reasons, uh, because in the Netherlands, the concept of allochtone is very much associated with non-Western groups. So when people think allochtone, they think Turkish, Moroccan, maybe Surinamese or Antillian, so colonial uh, migrants but they tend to forget that the biggest group of allochtonen in the Netherlands are Germans. So how can you explain that difference uh, of the treatment of the newcomers, as you explained it uh, first from your research, uh, towards the people who, uh, you know, they are not the early comers, but they have the same, you know, skin color as the early comers. And how can this be that uh, they are welcome and the rest not? I think this has to do a lot with a uh, common in-group identity, which is also something that, uh, that I do research on. Um, the idea that uh, we all belong to a higher overarching category, so that category can be European, for instance, in this case. And to the extent that uh, the Dutch see me as a European immigrant, they see also shared values, norms, they perceive less uh, symbolic threat, less less threat from a different different culture, perhaps, and uh, that is one of the unifying forces. Mm. 
Boria and her colleagues not only investigate how the general attitude towards outgroups is formed among the ethnically dominant population, but also they study which approach can be more effective in reducing the negative aspects of nativism, such as hostility toward migrants. I asked her to explain these approaches. So in another line of research that I'm conducting here with colleagues from Ercomer, we are looking at the role of perceived indispensability. Can you give it an explanation? Yeah, so there, there are actually two, two uh, dimensions of it. Um, one is that a group is seen as a necessary or indispensable part of the larger community, the nation state. Uh, in terms of uh, financial contribution, economic contribution. For instance, a certain group is maybe willing to do some jobs that the dominant population doesn't want to do. And then you can say, well, we need them to fill in that um, uh, position in, in, the, in the labor market. But then there is another dimension of indispensability, and that is the sense that we can have that a certain group is necessary for the identity of our nation. So if we want to present our country as very multicultural, as in the case of the Netherlands, for instance, um, the Netherlands without its Turkish population, without its Moroccan population, without its Polish population would not be the same multicultural Netherlands anymore. So what we're trying to show with this research is that to the extent that the dominant group, in this case, again, the Dutch, because I've done the, we've done the research in the Netherlands, uh, to the extent that they see minorities as indispensable or necessary part of either the economic or the identity aspect of the nation, uh, they're more willing to give them rights. And this is in contrast to uh, the idea of prototypicality, which is something that more research has been done on, which which argues that um, identification with a common identity, like for instance Spanish identity in Spain, uh, even though it should have this unifying uh, power, sometimes can lead to uh, uh, conflicts or, or, or at least tensions between groups because the groups tend to project their own characteristics on the uh, overarching identity. So what it means to be Spanish what the Spanish people think means to be Spanish might be different than what people in Catalonia think is Spanish. And then by nature of, uh, yeah, by being different, they, the Catalonians uh, fail to be really prototypically Spanish. And the research has shown that uh, perceived prototypicality is negatively related to attitudes towards outgroups. Um, so, and then for instance, if you look at the, Dutch situation uh, claiming that a Turkish or a Moroccan migrant is a prototypical Dutch person is not a very um, widely accepted claim. So you can very easily uh, contest it. And I think that these minorities themselves might also have a prototypical image of a tall, blonde, milk-drinking, bike-riding Dutch person. Um, so it's very difficult to improve intergroup relations if we focus on this prototypicality. But if instead we look more at indispensability and we say, well, some groups are more prototypical, others are less so, but even even though they're not prototypical, they are still very much needed or indispensable for the economy or for our multicultural identity.
but doesn't it perpetuate this uh, sense of superiority for those who are the typical and uh, in the points of hardship or when the what you call the indispensable groups are maybe no more needed or no more welcome, then it allows them to uh, sort of retract their uh, hospitality towards those people. Would that be the case? Well, as soon as the dominant group does not see a minority as indispensable, they're going to like them less. They're going to be less willing to give them rights. But the ultimate aim or, or the usefulness of this research would be to uh, try to um, promote the idea of indispensability. Because once you make that salient, people tend to uh, accept these groups more. Before I finish this episode, let me invite you to read the accompanying blog to this interview, which I write for the Utrecht University news site dub.nl in the English pages. You can comment under the blog post, or if you like, send me an email to s.faez at uu.nl. That is s.faez at sign uu.nl. You can hear all previous episodes of the Voice of Utrecht Academy on SoundCloud, Stitcher or iTunes. The next episode will be released in a month and we will hear from neuroscientist Wim Ote.